I shared this with somebody a, a few days ago. I don't think I shared it with, with you guys as a group. If I did, here we go. It was a, three or four weeks ago, I think. We were, Amanda and myself, and we have two daughters. If you don't know, we've got an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. And we were over at a friend's house for a birthday party. And lots of people are over, so they said, hey, bring lawn chairs because you can sit out in the backyard and talk. Football game will be on, but not everybody's going to fit in the living room. So we brought our lawn chairs and got there, and we put them out. And we spent most of the time inside talking with people. And it stayed for two or three hours, and it was time to leave and head home. And so we're loading the girls up, and, you know, you have to give them, you know, like a 20-minute countdown of, hey, we're, we're about to leave, so start pack, find your shoes, get all your stuff. And, and so we're standing in the foyer of the house about to leave. And my daughter, uh, the, the night before we'd gone to Gaddyland, and Rayleigh, my eight-year-old, had, uh, we had done some of the games, you know, the skee-ball. And she and I did the, the kids' basketball game, you know, where they shoot the baskets. But we tag-teamed, and Dad stood on the side, and she'd hand me the ball, and I'd dunk it in so we could get as many tickets as we could possibly get. That was her idea, not mine. I was just all for it. So she has all these, like, points, and... We, uh, she's got, you know, slime, and she's got candy, and she's got pencils and all this stuff, and she's got disappearing ink that she's wanting to spray on everybody to show them how it works. And she's got this slime and disappearing ink at her friend's house, and, and she lays them on, the, on a table in the foyer, and we're putting on shoes. We load up. We get in the car. And now let me pause for a second to say my daughter, my, my oldest one, the 8-year-old, if she could come here with, like, shoes and clothes on, and leave and not know she left them behind. Like, I mean, she loses and leaves everything behind. The four-year-old, like, picks up after herself. She's, like, conscientious. But the eight-year-old, I mean, it's just like a tornado places. And so we go, we get in the car, and we're, we're headed out of the neighborhood. And my wife looks at Ray there, and she goes, hey, did you, did you grab your stuff? And she goes, no. And man, like, sighs deeply. She's like, oh, my goodness. And she's about to turn around. I said, no, we're not turning around. This is, this is consequences of, of discipline. It's consequences of natural behavior. If you don't take care of your stuff, it gets left behind and you lose it. Now, when she left my iPad at Dos Salsas the day, you know, two days ago, we went back for that. But, I mean, when we're talking about slime and stuff like that, I'm like, you know, we're, it's a lesson. We're going to teach it. And so we leave and we leave it and we get to the house. And Amanda's frustrated. I'm frustrated because this is an ongoing thing. And, and, and we're kind of giving her the what for. I mean, girl, you've got to stop leaving your stuff places because you're going you're gonna to leave dad's iPad or you're going to leave this. It's, and you have to start being more conscientious. And we're, we're both. It's like double barrel. We're giving her the, the parent lecture. She goes and she's brushing her teeth, getting her hair done. And I get a text from the family that we were at. And I see the text and, I'm, and they're go, I, I know they're going to say, hey, Ray, they left her stuff. And the text says, hey, you left your lawn chairs. Do you want us to bring them to you on Sunday? <laughs> and at that moment, you know, you can rationalize a lot of things. You, I mean, does the eight-year-old need to know? Probably not. <laughs> and, I mean, the, the thought went through my head, you know, I'm responsible for a lot of things. I mean, if I had the choice of leaving a lawn chair or a child behind, it would be much better. I mean, I was taking care of children. I got both of them in my car, so that is success. Lawn chairs, that's beside the point. But uh, Amanda walks in, and I'm reading the text, and I go, oh, you're going to love this. And I read it to her, and we start laughing. And so we go in, and, you know, and, and this, is, this is where it gets difficult, because we don't have to. No one knows, except for us, and our, and our friends don't know. We just read, you know, the riot act to the eight-year-old. And we went in, and I said, okay, hey, mom and dad, I have something to tell you. We're gonna, we, we need to apologize to you and ex- explain what happened. And she was great. She was like, yes, team forgetfulness. And she's like, going to high-five us, you know. Uh, <laughs> I didn't have to do that. I didn't have to confess and say, hey, we blew it. But it's the right thing to do. Confession 
And that's the discipline we're talking about is good for the soul because it, it helps us to have this authentic and honest, this honest relationship with God and people. But when we talk about confession, you know, the word pictures that come to our mind aren't usually pleasant. And, I, you know, the first thing I think of is, you know, somebody that's like a criminal, you know, you know in court or right before they're going to be executed and they give their confession. You know, yes, there are 12 more bodies buried somewhere. You know, I'm like, I, that's not me. You know, I, that's, confession is for, for bad, bad people. Or you think about it and you, you might think of a friend that comes and sits down and takes you to coffee or lunch and says, hey, I've asked you to come here because I need to confess something to you. And at that moment, you're like, I don't know if I want this conversation, you know, something, because he's probably not inviting me to lunch to tell me that he used my stapler and didn't replace the staples at work. You know, I mean, that's, that's probably not what this conversation is. And we know that this conversation on the, on the back side of it is going to be this possibility for a life-changing moment. And it's probably going to be bad. Because again, no one's going to come, hey, I'm, I've got to confess to you. I've been struggling with it, and I want to give you $1,000. I mean, that's not a confession. That's a blessing. You know? And so confession has these negative things. If you grew up uh, in the Catholic tradition, it may, it may be positive. I didn't grow up in that tradition. Um, you might think of the confessional booth and be able to go in, and that might have been something as it's supposed to be, something that's healing. But if you didn't go in that, grow up in that tradition, you might think of that image, and that might kind of make you uncomfortable. Think I go inside a, a closet because it's just you've never done it before, and I, and I talk to somebody I don't know, that might make you feel kind of, you know, sweaty in the palms. You know, I, I don't like this topic. But scripture talks a lot about it. Jesus talks about it. The writer of the Proverbs talks about it. And that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at, the, at Proverbs chapter 28. And I want you to, to flip there. Why is it important? Because, we said earlier, it, it brings some healing. There's a story uh, of Clay and Velma Tompkins. They lived in Kentucky. And they tell the story. It was a Christmas, kind of a few days before Christmas. And they've got the Christmas lights out and everything's up. And, and it's kind of the end of the evening. And they're about to go to bed. And, and they walk out onto their porch to unplug the Christmas lights. And when they walk out on the porch, they see something at the end of their driveway. And it's a... Uh, it's big and it's wrapped, not Christmas wrapping, but it's wrapped in plastic. And they walk down to the end of the driveway and it's a chair. It's a wicker chair. And as they begin to pull the plastic off, they realize it's their wicker chair. It's their wicker chair that had been stolen from their front porch 18 years before. And there was a note in it. And a note read like this. It said, to whom it may concern, approximately 13 to 17 years ago, my husband stole this wicker rocking chair from the porch of this house. I'm ashamed of his behavior and I'm returning this stolen item. I have since been divorced from my husband and have since been, quote, unquote, born again. My life has completely changed and I want to undo any wrongdoing to the best of my ability. I know this chair is not the same condition as it was stolen and I apologize. I now live in another state, Tennessee, and I'm rarely in this vicinity. I realize the cowardly fashion in which I'm returning this, but the reason is obvious. I will not bother you again. Please forgive us sincerely. They took the chair and unwrapped it. And instead of putting it on the porch, they put it in their, living, in their bedroom with the note attached to it to be a reminder of the power of confession. Why do we do it? Well, because there's healing. 
you might connect to that story and you might have had something in your life where you go, yeah, I, I remember something like that where I did something wrong and it was with me for a, a long time and, and I couldn't let it go. That happens to us all the time. And the writer of Proverbs in, cha- in chapter 28, we're going to look at a couple of passages of Scripture. But, but in verse 13, I want this kind of be our key passage of Scripture this week. It might be something, if you've memorized Psalm 119, 105 with your kids, that's what we've been challenging them to do this, this series. This might be a good second verse. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. He who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Is it possible, is it possible that the key to successful living or a key at least, is found in confession. I mean, that, that's, that's what the proverb, this, this wise saying says. A person who conceals a sin, who does not confess, does not prosper. I mean, there's, there's this idea that if you've got something inside you that is supposed to come out, if you've got sin inside you that is supposed to be confessed before God, before man, and you don't do it, you're not going to live the life that God created you to live. There's going to be this little thing that you carry around inside of you called guilt. And if you've ever hidden sin for a while, you, you've experienced that. You know what it's like. It's not, a, it's not a pleasant feeling. We have this guilt inside of us that says, hey, what you've done is wrong. And, and then here's, here's what makes it worse. The longer it's, it remains hidden, the worse it becomes. Now, you might be able to Hide it long enough that it becomes out of sight, out of mind from your daily routine. But every now and then that it comes back up. Something comes up and you go, well, gosh, that might become, come out of the dark and into the light. That sin or that, that wrong that I did 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if it's, if it's revealed today, it's going to be worse than if it was revealed 20 years ago because you know that you're in relationships with people, that if this sin that happened 20 years ago that you've been carrying around and the guilt is there, if it comes into the light 20 years later, that might be a relationship changer. Because all of a sudden the people close to you start thinking in the back of their mind, whoa, well, I didn't know that was hidden. I didn't know you had done that. And then the next question is, well, if you were able to hide that for 20 years, what else are you hiding? And suspicion and relationship and trust is, has been breached. And, and we know that inherently. We might not think that, but we feel that. And so the longer it goes, the more important it is to keep it hidden. And we live with this guilt. And we live with shame, knowing that we're hiding those things. And Satan, man, Satan is, he's great at the game of guilt and shame. Satan will, will whisper into your ear, golly, you're not good enough. You've got this secret. And he whispers, and you're not like everybody else. If everybody knew, if you confessed, if you came clean with that, boy, you, your reputation would be drugged through the mud. I mean, your kids and your spouse would be affected you might lose your career. And in some cases, that could be true. But he's going to continue to talk and build shame onto you and make you feel like you're something less than worthy of forgiveness and less than worthy of a, of a prosperous life. He who conceals his sin does not prosper. Well, there's two types of confession, I would say. There's people smarter than me. Probably there might be more. And I'm just going to, we're going to talk about them for a minute. I'm just going to categorize them into two categories. The elementary confession and the, and the university level confession. 
The elementary confession is, is a private confession between us and God. And that's a spiritual discipline that ought to be practiced daily. As a part of our, of our prayer life, as a part of our walk with God, we ought to have a daily time of reflection where we look back and go, God, hey, th- this is where I messed up. And I say it's elementary because there's really not much for you to lose at all. It's, it's, it's simple. I mean, you're not saying anything to God that he doesn't already know. You know, you're not surprising him. He already knows it, and, and, and no one else is going to know it. So it's just this relationship builder between you and God. And you go, well, okay, I, maybe I get that. I still don't understand why that's important. Well, let me tell you a story that a pastor wrote, and he's a pastor and wrote in his book. And he talks about how uh, 20 years or so ago when he was a young minister, he was counseling people in his office, and he had a, a lady that came to his office really struggling with a lot of guilt and a lot of shame. And, and he knew the family well. He knew her husband, was very close to her husband. And as, as the wife began to talk about what she was struggling with, she, said, she confessed something she had never told anybody else. She said, I, I had an affair 20 years ago. I cheated on my husband two decades ago, and, and it's been a secret. And I think that that is the root of, of the problems I'm still having now. And the pastor said, I don't tell this to every person. And he said, but I knew her husband, and I knew what godly man he was. And I suggested to her, I said, I think you need to confess to him. I think you need to, to tell him. And she said, he said that she thought about it. And she said, well, pastor, I trust you. And I trust your judgment, so I'm going to. But I want you to know that if my marriage ends or something goes wrong, I'm holding you to blame. And he said that she didn't say it with like a smile on her face at all, you know. As a pastor, I might say, I didn't cheat on your husband. You know, I don't know why I'm being blamed. But, but he said, and just a young, he said, he just started praying that her husband, when he heard the, that word, would, uh, would accept it and it would be a marriage builder. He said, a week went by and he saw her. The next time he saw her and he asked her, he said, hey, did, how, how did it go? And she said, well, you won't believe this. I went home and I prayed about it all the way home. I got home and asked him if I could, we could sit down and talk. We sat down and talked and I came clean and I confessed to him everything that happened 20 years ago. And she goes, you know what he told me? She said that he, he told her that he'd known for 20 years. He'd known for 20 years and he'd just been waiting for her to tell him so that he could tell her how much he loved her. Now that, that's a strong marriage. That's also a picture of God. God already knows. There's no secret to him what you've done, what you thought, what you said, he already knows. And, and when we come and we confess and we go, God, I want this relationship between you and I to have no blocks in it anymore. I don't want this sin there. And we go, God, here's what's happened. And I agree with you that it was wrong. And I'm sorry. I, I, I'm repentant. God says, I already know. And I just want you to know now how much I love you. I've known from the very beginning. And so this elementary confession, we really have nothing to lose. God already knows. He loves us in spite of it. He loved us at the height of our sin, but it's a good relationship builder. It begins to to help us become more like Jesus and become closer with him. And so that discipline of confession privately between us and God is important. Call it elementary, but the university level, the difficult level of of confession comes when we confess one to another. James chapter five says this. I think I have the verse up there. Did I print it up there, Marshall? James 5, if not, let me flip to it. James chapter 5, I believe it's verse 13. It says this. Verse 16, I'm sorry. James says, therefore, confess your sins to each other. 
Let me read that again. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. Elementary confession. God, here's what I've done in the privacy of my own room with me and God and the only ones talking is elementary. Therefore, confess your sins one to another. Hey, I have this person in my life, whether it be an accountability person or somebody where I go, hey, here's what I'm struggling with and here's where I've blown it. All of a sudden, that's a whole nother level of confession. We could walk out of here today going, okay, the discipline of private confession, I'm calling it elementary confession, easy. We could all walk out, feel good about ourselves. But are you ready? Are you ready for the spiritual discipline of being in a relationship with somebody that is so spiritually intimate, so spiritually accountable, that you could say to them, hey, this just happened in my life hey, I was confronted with this decision and I made the wrong one and I've confessed it to God and I'm making it right with whoever I've sinned, but I need to confess to someone else so that you can pray for me. That, that's not easy. But what we were gonna lean into is this, and really it's just kind of a restatement of the way the writer in Proverbs says it, is honesty, which is where confession comes from. Honesty leads to confession and confession leads to change. And one of the things we talk about at First Baptist, we value, is transformation. We don't, we don't just gather here on a Sunday morning or our, our students on a Wednesday night because we want to learn some things. We want to be mentally more spiritual. We want our lives to be different. We want our lives to be transformed. We want the things that we do programmatically in church. We want the messages that are taught to be transformative lessons where we leave here and we're different than we walked in. And if you're ready for that, then it's time to step into a discipline that's very difficult. Confess your sins one to another. Now that doesn't mean that we're gonna bring a microphone up next week and we'll start with this small group. You guys get to go first and come up and, and you'll, I'm gonna confess to everybody. Here's Public confession needs to happen in public sin. Private confession needs to happen with private sin. If you sin against someone, you need to confess to them. But if you have an accountability partner, somebody that you can, that you can walk closely with, that's a person that, that should have the intimate knowledge of your life. And so if we're going to step into this, and then we're going to really kind of shift from the, the private confession to public or confessing another as we talk about application, because I think as adults, I think as our teenagers come on Wednesday, I don't think I have to give some application or some tools for us to figure out how to talk with God about what's going on. That one's pretty easy. But what are we going to do if we're going to live this discipline corporately? If we're going to live this discipline out in front of people? And the first thing, and if you're a note taker, you might write this down because hopefully God is going to speak something to you along the way that says, hey, lean in here. The first thing is to find some kind of accountability. I mentioned that just a minute ago. To have somebody in your life that can know everything. I was teaching a, a Sunday school conference yesterday in Salado, and uh, one of the ladies raised her hand, and we were doing some question and answer at the end. And her question was, she says, well, what do you do she said, I've come under, I've come under fire somewhat uh, by some people in our church. They're upset with me uh, because in our youth small group, she said, our students talk about their life. And she says, now, I don't, I, don't, we don't, I don't take it outside the small group. We ask that it doesn't leave the small group. But some teenagers are talking about some sensitive things that are happening in their life and in their family. And some parents have come to me and said, hey, we don't want you talk. We don't want, we don't want our family business discussed in small groups. And she goes, what would you say to that? 
And I said, well, I would be very gentle in how I said it, and I'm not going to be as gentle as I communicate it to you. you know, I would say it much nicer than I could say it, but I would say this, what kind of, what kind of relationships in life do you want? What kind of Christian community do you want? Do you want a superficial surface level where we all, we all smile and we shake hands and we go home with hurt and pain? Is that what you want? We just gather on a Sunday? Because that's a, that's a check the box kind of Christianity. I showed up and I faked it all the way through. Or do you want a kind of community? Do you want relationships where people know you and you can be authentic and, and, and you can know them and you can be known and, and you can have depth of conversation and you can have people that pray for you? I said, that's what's happening in your small group. Your small group is actually healthy. You have teenagers that are saying, hey, here's what's happened in my life so that you can pray for me, so that you can walk alongside me. There's some accountability developing inside that small group. And I said, if people are upset with that, I said, as gently as I could say, I'd say, hey, there are probably a lot of superficial churches around. Go find one of those. Because actually, if you don't want community and you don't want depth, you're probably gonna hurt the spiritual journey of the people sitting around you. That's hard to say. But what do you want? Surface level? Sunday, we show up, check it off. We put on a smile, pretend like our family's okay. Or do we really want to be okay? I, I want, I want the, the people of God to come and gather and to be very honest and say, you know what? Every one of us in this room is a sinner. I am. Uh, and I, I try to be as transparent as I can be. I tell teenagers all the time. I tell adults all the time. This is being recorded. It goes onto iTunes for the world to hear, and I don't mind the world hears. If you look on my phone, you look on my computer in my office, you look on my computer at home, you look on my iPad, I have a thing on there that's from Triple X Church that uh, if anything that goes through those devices goes to something that's pornographic, my wife gets an email about it and, and the site and everything. I got tagged the other day for going to fantasy football because there's a fantasy inside of it. I took a picture of the screenshot and sent it to her. I was like, here it comes. That was the first time that ever happened. But you know what? I don't mind people knowing that. I'll be very, I'll be very honest to say, as, a, as, an, as an adult male, being visually oriented, pornography, naked women, whatever, that's always going to be a temptation. We live in a world that tries to send it to me all the time to get my credit card so they can make money. That's very real. I'm not, I'm not, if I said something that like, well, I don't, I'm not really interested in naked women, I'd be lying. And if you're a guy in here and you'd say the same thing, you'd be lying. If your teenager says the same thing, they'd be lying. But do you want a pastor? Do you want relationships with people that go, oh, I don't struggle with that? If you struggle with that, whew, well, that just means that you're a sinner of some different kind than I am. No, I know that I would struggle with it. And that's why I put boundaries in my life so that I can live righteously. And, and if something happened, which thank goodness it hasn't, if something happened, I've got people in my life. One guy sitting right here. Another guy um, is teaching down here that I meet with every other week that I could say, hey, this is what I struggle, man, I blew it. So that you could pray for me because I don't want to blow it again. I love the story that Kevin Kim tells about his Ash Wednesday service. In their Ash Wednesday service, um, it's traditional for their church. They put a cross up and people come in and they write sins and they go and they, and they fold them up and they pin them to the cross. And he tells of this family that came in, it's a mom and dad, they got three or four kids. Their youngest was six years old and they all come in for the Ash Wednesday service and they do like they've always done and they get their sheet of paper and, and you know, they're, they're kind of hiding it, you know, from, you know, writing real small, you know, my sin. And then they're, they're folding it up and they all walk up and they pin it up there. Well, their six-year-old goes last. 
And as their six-year-old goes up, he's got, he's writing in six-year-old big block letters on this sheet of paper. And he walks up and he pins it to the cross, not folded up at all. Everyone can see it. God, I'm sorry that I lie. And he signed it. And his parents kind of laughed at it because, you know, they, he doesn't understand what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to hide those things and, you know, just so Jesus can see it. And so they said something to him about it, kind of in jest. And they said, they, they called their son and said, you know, you know, why didn't you fold it up? And as innocent and as true as, it, as could be, he said, well, because if somebody sees it that knows me, maybe they can help me. Six-year-old. had Maybe that's what Jesus meant when he said we're supposed to have faith like a child. You know, the, it understands there's accountability, not just him and another person. He said, anybody in my church, here it is. I'm a liar. And if you can help me, help me. We need accountability. And that may be the takeaway that some of us have this morning. You may just stop now and start praying, God, who is it that can be in my life that can keep me accountable? That, that may be your takeaway. Here's the second thing, though. We commit to total authenticity. If we're going to confess, we go all the way. There's research that was just done. They titled the research, I Cheated But Only a Little. And here's what they found out. They, they uh, did the research over 4,000 different people. And they found out that there's three categories of people. There's people that haven't confessed. They have something hidden in their life. There's people that have confessed partially. They told part of the story to make it sound a little bit more reasonable, to make it not sound so bad. And they had people who had outright confessed totally. Of the three categories of people, you know who the most miserable people were? The people who confessed part of the time, partially. They, they were more miserable than the people still hiding it. When they came back in the research, says they said, you've kind of got it out there. And now you've kind of got it out there, but you don't have it all out there. And so now you're, you're wrestling with the fact that now if it does come out, not only did you just not tell the truth for a long time, you only told half a truth when it did. So we, that, that's science right there. If you're going to confess be a totally authentic person. If you want to be an authentic believer, somebody who has a real relationship with God and with people, authenticity comes in its totality. It's like pregnancy. You can't be kind of pregnant. You either are or you aren't. And authenticity is the same way. You either are or you aren't. And this discipline of confession, let's just say it now, it needs to be total authenticity. As you're wrestling with that, it, it's not what we talk about. It's not baby steps. Lots of times we talk about baby step. What's my next step? Well, if you're going to be authentic, that's one whole step in and of itself. Find some accountability. Embrace total authenticity. And here's the third thing. Renounce sin. Go back to Proverbs 28, 13. It says, he who conceals his sin does not prosper, but whoever confesses and renounces them, I'm sorry, renounces them, finds mercy. It's not just that I go and say, hey, here's what I've done. It's not just the confession in and of itself. There is the renouncing of the sin that says, I'm done with it now. I'm, I'm confessing, I like alcohol a little too much. I, I, I get drunk on, on a regular basis. I'm confessing that and I'm renouncing it. I'm going to put boundaries in my life that keep me from going there again because I want to live righteously. I confess that I've cheated on my taxes and I'm renouncing them. I'm not just confessing that I've, that I've fudged the numbers. I'm not going to do it anymore. I confess that I struggle with lust, with greed, with 
gluttony, with whatever it is, and I renounce that. I'm putting boundaries in my life to walk away from that so that the confession is not a continual confession. And you understand that. If your kids came to you as a child to a parent and said, Mom, Dad, I'm confessing this. I did it, and I'm sorry. And you walked through there, and you, and you hugged, and you forgave, and everything went well. And the next day they came back and said, Mom, Dad, hey, you know, I, conf- I did it again. Well, okay. Day three, Mom, Dad, I did it again. Day four, Mom, Dad, I did it again. And for the next year or several years, every day they came, hey, I'm confessing. I did, at some point you'd go, <laughs> we've got a, we're, we're, we got a problem here. It's not just about confessing every day. It's about renouncing sin. It's about, it's about the transformation that comes through confession. Because honesty leads to confession. We're really honest. It leads to confession. And confession leads to change. You become different because you're not walking that path any longer. Whoever conceals a sin does not prosper. But whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Augustine said this. He said, the confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. You see, there's a transformation that happens. It's the first, the the confession of evil works is the first beginning of good works. I start now moving forward and being a righteous person because I've confessed the things that that, that I've done before. i close with this story and we're gonna let you get up into your groups. I don't know who told the story. It was in a book. I I can't recall where it was now, but... um, husband's telling a story about his, his wife who was a nurse and she'd been a nurse for a doctor's practice for several years and had the opportunity to move over to another doctor's office with two doctors that she'd worked with when she was younger that she absolutely loved. And everything worked out and, and that she made the transition and she was super excited because it was just going to be the greatest work environment that she'd had. First day on the job, it's evening, coming to the end of her shift, a mother brings in her 18-month-old for just a routine immunization. And the nurse goes and, and, and gives the, the immunization to the 18-month-old, hands the child back and kind of processes. And the mom's going to meet with the doctor some things the mom has. And as the nurse walks down the hallway, she sticks her hand in her lab coat and feels the, uns, the, the sealed vial of the immunization she was supposed to give the 18-month-old. And she starts to go into a panic, pulls it out and realizes she just gave the 18-month-old the wrong immunization. First day on the job. She started, she started panicking. She said, you know, my mind went through, through several different things. Of, uh, okay, well, what, is the baby going you know, to be okay? And, and she looked, and the baby had already had that immunization. She thought, well, surely doubling the immunization can't really hurt anything, right? I'm, I'm sure that's fine. But if I say something, if I say something, then, you know, it's my first day on the job. Are, the doc, are these doctors going to trust me anymore when I, when I screwed up on day one? And she started wrestling, you know, if nothing's going to happen, and oh gosh. And she's pacing back and forth in the hallway while the doctor is meeting with the mom for the mom's checkup. And she's pacing back and forth. What do I do? Does it really matter? Should I say something? Would I get fired? And it's in those moments that Christian character is formed. Because it's in those moments when we decide, do I confess or not? Do I practice the discipline that draws me closer to Jesus? And in a story, as the doctor got done, she pulled the doctor aside, told him what had happened. The doctor looked things, said everything's going to be all fine. Explained to the mother, here's what's happened. We made a small mistake, scheduled the baby to come back in and get the right immunization, and everything was fine. But in her words, it was more than fine. 
the word she used was, I was free. I was free. In those moments, she had trapped herself, and confession was the key to freedom. Honesty leads to confession, and confession leads to change. I don't want to lie to you and pretend like confession, the discipline of it, is easy. It's anything but. And I know there's, there's some of us, and there'll be students that walk out this morning or Wednesday evening with head knowledge about confession with no, no intention to ever apply it. My prayer for you is that the Holy Spirit will continue to work on you to bring you to a point of total authenticity with your brothers and sisters of the faith. For those of you who are ready, maybe it's finding the accountability partner, or maybe there's something. Maybe there's something that you've had in the Spirit this whole morning. You haven't heard anything I've said because as soon as I said confession, the Holy Spirit just started talking to you. Maybe before you go to church this morning, you need to step outside and make a phone call. Maybe, maybe you need to skip church this morning and go to somebody and confess. That's biblical. Jesus said if somebody has a problem with you, you go and fix it before you come and bring your offering. Maybe that's what you need to do this morning. I'm gonna give you an opportunity to talk a little bit further, and I'm gonna be praying that your discussions go deep because this topic is not one that lends itself to a whole lot of intimacy. But you'll find some questions in your app uh, on your phone, and we'd love for you to, to process these things through. And there's some good questions for you to talk with your kids about this week on the parent side of that app. But I'm gonna pray for us and then let you talk.